Right now, I want to invite you to kneel with me. Um, I'm strong, strong enough now that I can get back to kneeling, I think. Uh, let's kneel and let's have a word of prayer before we get into our uh, study for this morning. So please kneel with me now if you can. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Father, we come before you, praising you for all that you are. That you are, as John tells us, a God of love. That you are love. And we are uh, still discovering this. Uh, It's something that uh, we will learn, always be learning of throughout the ages of eternity. And we praise your name. We praise you for uh, providing for salvation for your people, for humanity. Uh, we praise your name for uh, taking care and, and uh, living up to the promises that you've made to your people. That you love us and care for us tenderly as a father would. Uh, his child. And father, we praise your name for providing for the, the necessities of life while we're here. We praise you uh, for sending Jesus especially to show us the way to salvation, and to teach us about your true character, not the one that we hear from too many pulpits that uh, have um, have boughtened the argument that Satan has. You're some kind of tyrant that needs to be appeased. But in Jesus we see that you are indeed a God of love and mercy and a just God. So we praise you here today. We thank you for the Sabbath day that you created, that we could be together and learn um, more about your character, about the wonderful things that you've created. We pray, Lord, that you will send the Holy Spirit to be with us. We appreciate that precious gift. We also ask humbly that angels will be around us and remove any source of evil so that we can truly rest on this Sabbath day, that we can learn from your Holy Word what it's like to be a citizen of heaven. We We want to know so that we can be there. Father, we've sinned in so many different ways and we we believe, as Paul said, that there is no good thing in us. And we ask humbly, Lord, that you will forgive us. We claim the blood that Jesus shed at Calvary for our sins. We pray that you will help us to overcome these things, that we may bring glory to thy name. And Father, we have many that we wish to pray for. We pray for... Susan's cousin, Malia, and we pray for um, our sister, uh, um, Springleaf's business manager, who she's witnessing to. We pray that the Holy Spirit will surround her and guide her to the truth and that she will be acceptable to what you have done for her through Christ. Lord, as I speak today, I pray that you give me the words that are not my opinions, but that they're the truth, that those who hear them will discern that they are truth, accept them, and that we may be changed. And Father, help us to hasten the day of our Lord's return. We thank you for hearing this prayer. We pray it in His blessed name. Amen. As I've uh, mentioned earlier, 
I've entitled this, uh, this particular study, No Kingly Attitude. No Kingly Attitude. In our studies concerning the church of Christ, we found that it is a family, haven't we? It's, it's a family founded upon the character traits of God as we find them expressed in His holy law. Uh, we've discovered that the original family model for this earth was the first church uh, on this planet. and It was organized for service to God and to each other. And this idea, friends, uh, I will tell you, has never changed. It's never changed, this ideal. Uh, Even though sin was introduced, the ideal still hasn't changed. Because sin entered the kingdom, and as the Bible says, death by sin, God sent His Son to show us the way home. Praise the Lord. You know, the way back to the family, the way back to the will of God. And because of sin there are two churches. And uh, you know, regardless of what many preachers may tell you, the Bible depicts, and we've gone through these studies, friends. I hope that, uh, that uh, you can see that there really are only two churches. The Church of Christ and the Church of Antichrist. And if you don't understand the differences between the two, I'm going to tell you that you are well on your way to rejecting the true the true church. In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15, Paul tells us that the church of Christ is the pillar and ground of the truth. And of course we know that uh, Jesus said He's the truth, right? I'm the truth, the life, and the way. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 6, the Apostle Peter quotes from Isaiah. Well, they always quoted from the Old Testament, pretty much, friends. When he says... Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. So what are we seeing here? Like Jesus said, He is the truth. And if the church of Christ is the pillar and ground of the truth, it is founded upon what? The cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And this is the key. This is the key, I believe, friends, that Satan tries so desperately to hide. And the fact is uh, that he's been very successful. He has been very successful. John chapter 19 beginning with verse 14, it says to us, And it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. Now that would be who? That would be Pilate, right? He said, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? Very interesting response that they had, friends. And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. That's amazing. 
you see, what did they do? Not only did they want to murder Jesus, but uh, uh, they accepted a new king. And that's a, a kingly attitude. This is an attitude, friends, that I want to uh, talk uh, with you about. You see, when Jesus came to Israel, they not only failed to recognize Him, they actually rejected Him, didn't they? And if we're not careful, we may just reject Him as they did. If we're not careful, if we don't understand some of these principles about who and what the church is, about organization, we may be in the wrong church thinking we're in the right church. We may be in the church of Antichrist thinking we're in the church of Christ. Remember, Lucifer rebelled. And why did he rebel in heaven? He rebelled because he wanted to be, he did, he wanted to be the chief cornerstone. And his kingly power attitude, uh, friends, I find too much, it, it actually prevails too much in Christendom. And this attitude creeps into church organization. And if not checked, it's going to choke it to death. Oh, they'll think that they're doing God's will, but it'll be dead. It'll actually be a dead church. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, whited sepulchers, outside, really beautiful, inside, full of dead men's bones. And it happened to Israel as they rejected the Messiah. Uh, so, let's learn not to repeat their mistake. Amen? Once you notice this statement about Jesus, it's found in the Desire of Ages, page 111. She says, The kingdom he had come to establish was the opposite of that which the Jews desired. So Jesus comes, he wanted to establish a kingdom, kingdom of righteousness, of love, and that was the opposite of what the Jews desired. Well, what does that tell you? <laughs> she goes on, He who was the foundation of the ritual and economy of Israel would be looked upon as its enemy and destroyer. Well, they didn't desire the kingdom he came to, uh, to establish. So, how did they look at him? Did they welcome him with open arms? No, because he's the opposite, you see. But he was the foundation of Israel. But they looked upon him, as she says, as an enemy and destroyer. He who had proclaimed the law upon Sinai, would be condemned as a transgressor. He who had come to break the power of Satan would be denounced as Beelzebub. You see the pattern here? And the greatest reason for this reaction was that those who were in charge of the system viewed themselves as being the church. And they realized that if Jesus were to be accepted, many of them would, what? They'd lose their positions. Because they had a kingly attitude. And there's a similar problem in the professed church of God today. And I'll tell you, friends, there, there are some inspired counsels that we're willing to deal with but there are other inspired counsels that we are not 
that would actually save the professed church from having the same kingly attitude that rejects the Savior. If many of the councils of Ellen White were really advocated, I'm going to tell you, they'd be considered to be dangerous to the the professed church, possibly even capable of destroying it. An attitude that resembles the one against Christ when he was here the first time. That's the attitude. And we read before that that attitude is the opposite of what Christ had come to establish. I do not believe, however, that we will ever receive God's blessing until we feed upon every inspired word. Do you agree with me? Amen? Principles of church organization affect every aspect of the church, from the youngest member on up to the general conference. And in the Bible, in the spirit of prophecy, there's a a great deal of information dealing with church organization that is written not only to those in leadership positions, but to members as well. And throughout history, whenever... Doctrine becomes corrupted. You find it, friends, from Genesis to Revelation. You can find the examples. Whenever doctrine becomes corrupted, organization also becomes corrupt. I mean, spiritual Babylon is a very prime example. We see this in the book of Revelation. God is as concerned about false organization as He is about false doctrine. I'm telling you, friends. In the writings of Ellen White, there's a great deal written about doctrine. But also find hundreds of pages, literally, friends, hundreds of pages written about church organization, which we're afraid to touch. (laughs) Because if we even read the quotation, if we read it out loud to someone, we will be accused of criticism. I want to tell you, it's past time that we have the courage of John the Baptist. and With a spirit of love, don't get me wrong, always a spirit of love, humbly look at the things God has given to us, praying that He will help us to, to implement these things so He can pour out His Spirit and finish, that we may finish the work that He's seeking to do through us. You know, Paul actually tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 2, how the church is really to be organized. You put it down to a real nutshell. That's a, one of the scriptures that I would point to when you're talking about organizing gospel order. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, Paul said, Unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, our Lord, excuse me, both theirs and ours. You see, the, the church at Corinth, identified by Paul here, is not addressed as the church, which is nonprofit. It doesn't say that anywhere, does it? Now it could be nonprofit, but that's not the point. 
Nothing is said regarding their organization or where they meet. You find that anywhere in this verse? They may meet in some building, but they're organized. But again, that's not the point. The church here in Corinth is defined by Paul as those people in Corinth who are sanctified and called to be the saints of God. And you've heard me say this many times before. The church was to be organized, but the organization is not the church. The people, their Corinth, who were sanctified and called to be saints, they are the church. These people could work in harmony because this is what happens when God is in your heart. You're going to work in harmony. So they would meet and they'd work together. They'd send out missionaries. They'd take up offerings. They, they would do all those things which are necessary for God's work to progress. But the church itself was the people. And this is what the church has always been, hasn't it? And I'll go a step further here. We talk about the people. In a special sense, the church is made up of those people who are registered in the books of heaven. Isn't that true? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. Did you catch that? Which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. The church, the true church of Christ is composed of those people who are registered in the book of life in heaven. Now, this presents a very interesting situation, doesn't it? I mean, let's think about some questions here. Who decides who's going to be a church member? Is it the Pope who proclaims he has the keys? If it's not the Pope, is it the church board? I mean, can't they decide? I mean, it is the church board, right? What about the church body? Do they decide? Uh, the church body decides whose name's written in the book of life? <laughs> Can we decide who is saved and who's not? I mean, whose name is written in heaven and whose name is not? Well, don't we have anything to do? Yes, we have something to do. And this is where some people get mixed up. We are called to recognize those whom God has registered in the books in heaven and those whom He has uh, registered in heaven. We're to register here. 
He does not, however, adapt to us. We're to adapt to Him, isn't that true? And there's a difference. So, let us suppose that God takes someone's name off of the books in heaven, and they, and of course we're in the judgment. <laughs> so this is happening, friends. But let's, let's suppose that God takes someone's name off the books in heaven, and they are what we call disfellowshipped. Are they still church members? No. But suppose their names remain in the books on earth. Well, that's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? The truth is that the church is purified when the membership books on earth match the, the book of life in heaven. When the judgment's over, friends. You see, God has given mankind no authority to decide who can be a member and who cannot be a member, but simply to recognize those whom He has accepted or rejected. We can't read the heart, but we can see by their fruits. He's laid out the principles for us in His Word. And this is a hard concept for many because of the, the false idea that has been put forth that all are accepted of God. But what does the Bible say? The Bible tells us that not all are accepted. And God has local congregations here on earth to help organize the work, but, but the headquarters of the local church friends is in heaven where only the sanctified, you see, are registered. It's not in some office in your state or some office in Washington, D.C. And some people find this uh, rather disconcerting. Believing such a truth could lead to all kinds of trouble. And it actually has led to a lot of trouble. And that has helped cause the home church movement. But just suppose that a coup... Let's think of this. Suppose that a coup took place in some local church or conference through politicking and, and some people who were not inspired by the Lord or filled with the Holy Spirit took over through manipulation and, and because of their prejudices, certain people were unjustly disfellowshipped. Let me ask you, would those who were unjustly disfellowshipped cease to be church members? Certainly not. And this has happened all over the world. It's happened in the United States. It's happened in South America. It's happened in Asia. It has happened in virtually every continent. And suppose, on the other hand, that people were allowed to come into the church who were never converted. <laughs> because their names were in the books on earth, would they therefore be church members? Not in any way, shape, or form. Even though their names are registered in the local church books. God has never left His church to be manipulated and, and tampered with by the political whims of mankind, friends. And there's coming a time when He's going to turn and overturn the professed church that is called by His name. But God's true church remains the same as it always 
has always been. Those people who are registered in the books of heaven. We're very familiar with this quote I want to share. It's often misused, sad to say, and misunderstood. It's found in Upward Look, page 315. God has a church. It is not the great cathedral. Neither is it the national establishment. Neither is it the various denominations. It is the people who love God and keep His commandments. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Matthew 18, verse 20. Where Christ is, even among the humble few, this is Christ's church. For the presence of the High and Holy One who inhabiteth eternity can alone constitute a church. And again, I'll remind you, never forget, the church is to be organized, but the organization is not the church. When Paul was ordained, he was ordained to baptize and establish churches, the two together. And according to inspiration, the same ordination that gives people the authority to baptize gives them the authority to establish churches. But what do you see happening through Christendom today, friends? I mean, more and more, and even throughout Adventism, this has been going on for a long time, there are increasing restrictions controlling the starting of new churches. Did you know that? Who is doing the controlling? Who's doing the restricting? Those that have a kingly attitude. You know, pastors used to be serving several churches in the 1800s. That's where the expression, you know, circuit-riding preacher came from. They had congregations scattered around. If you look at the apostles, that's the way they were. But since the turn of the century, the early 1900s, uh, they've, they wound up planting those pastors into one or two church districts. And look at the emergence of the megachurches today. What is this all about? Friends, it's all about control. The fruits of a kingly attitude. Not only has God alone reserved the right to start and to recognize a church, but if you and I decide to go out and start a church apart from His will, no matter what conference committee may approve it, it will never be a member of God's church. Because remember, for the presence of the High and Holy One who inhabiteth eternity can alone constitute a church. We just read that. And so if if uh, God's presence is not the center of the church on earth, it's not recognized by Him as His church. Whether or not it's recognized by a conference of the Seventh-day Adventist denomination or not. I mean, remember what Paul said. The church was those who were called and sanctified. And we've been studying, you know, in Sabbath school. We've been we've about to the end of the, the book Acts of the Apostles. We, we studied this. We remember what Paul, uh, what Paul did. He went about, didn't he, to, to city after city, 
And wherever Paul went and converted a few people, what did he do? He organized them, didn't he? He organized them into a church. And why was the church organized? It was organized for service. But he organized them into a church right there and then without seeking any other permission. He had his authority. He didn't have authority, have to wait for authority from Jerusalem or Battle Creek or Washington, D.C. He had authority from heaven. You see, it wasn't up to the church in Jerusalem to give permission to Paul or to decide if that uh, group is a church or not. The only authority they were given was to recognize the fact that that group was a church. A member of the family of God. Now, of course, if a local church apostatized, it was also up to the church in Jerusalem to decide that, as these people are no longer keeping the commandments of God. They're no longer recognized, you see, by us as being one of God's churches. But isn't the reverse true as well? All these other churches were to help keep Jerusalem in check. Think about it. For us individually, friends, to, to receive the Holy Spirit, what do we got to do? Well, we, we need to study the Bible, don't we? And we need to pray. Um, and, and, and we need to overcome sin. And we need to witness to others about Jesus. Isn't that true? And for the church body to receive the Holy Spirit, they must, as a body, also have uh, at least these four things present. So not only is it necessary for us as individuals to be winning others to Christ, but God's design for His church is that every church should start new churches. Isn't that our commission? To go and make disciples of all nations? And one of the things that must take place before God can pour out His blessing upon the church is not only revival of primitive doctrine, but I hope you figured this out, friends, from our studies. It's also a revival of primitive organization. Apostolic organization. And this is why I've spent so much time and energy on this subject. The New Testament churches had the freedom, you see, to go out and start new churches. But they were not just started and, and uh, uh, left to flounder by themselves. No, they, they were left with local organization based upon God's instruction. God's gospel order. Let's go to Acts chapter 14. Acts 14, beginning with verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. You see what they're doing there? Authority in the early church was to be earned because of a godly life and knowledge of the scriptures and the ability that God had given to one. 
but never was it uh, to come just by virtue of office. Well, we need to put somebody in office here. You had to qualify according to God's standards. And today, the professed church is being destroyed in some parts of the world because some have assumed the office of minister and decided that because they have that office, they are the king of the local church. Have you experienced that before? I'll tell you, I have. God never intended that office to be that of a king, but one of a servant. In Acts 20, verse 17, notice this, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. This is Paul. He's calling the elders of the church. What elders were these that he called? Well, these were the elders who had been appointed. Isn't that right? And here's the instruction Paul gave to these elders. Go down to verse 28. Acts 20, verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves. What's he saying there? Take heed therefore unto yourselves. This is a serious matter. You need to check yourself. Right? So he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Okay? So he's talking in terms that Jesus did of, of I'm going to put under shepherds in charge of the flock. And so there are certain characteristics when you're an under shepherd. If you're a good under shepherd, you're not just a hireling, a good under shepherd really loves the flock and cares for it. He protects it. He feeds it. And this is what Paul... Paul is saying here. And then in verse 29 he says, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch, he says to these elders, and remember, okay, Remember what I've told you. Then he says that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Remember how I was a shepherd. You see? So he called the elders to feed the flock of God and to guard it from wolves. And what were these wolves? They were men who would draw members out of the true church. Or you could say they attempted to draw members out of the book of life. In a correlating passage to this in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 77. And Ellen White here, she's writing of her own experience. Notice what she says. She says, Who knows but that the preachers who are faithful, firm, and true may be the last who shall offer the gospel of peace to our unthankful churches. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. To our unthankful churches. Who who knows but that they... See, that's a question. It may be that the destroyers are already training under the hand of Satan and only wait the departure of a few more standard bearers to take their places and with the voice of the false prophet cry, Peace, peace, when the Lord hath not spoken peace. 
She says, I seldom weep, but now I find my eyes blinded with tears. They are falling upon my paper as I write. It may be that ere long all prophesyings among us will be at an end. And the voice which has stirred the people may no longer disturb their carnal slumbers. It's remarkable. And Paul had the same concern. He had this same concern. And the elders were called to protect the church from such wolves. Now the question is, friends, let's suppose that a wolf came from Jerusalem. From church headquarters. Were the elders of that local church to protect the church from that wolf? Oh no, someone says. Not a local elder. They don't have authority to stand up against someone from the general conference at Jerusalem. Is that true? Turn with me to one of the most interesting passages in the New Testament uh, regarding this. It's found in Galatians chapter 2. Somebody comes in from the conference and, and is found to be a wolf. Aren't the local elders to stand up against that? That's the question here. Notice what Paul says here. Galatians 2 verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. What happened here? Peter shows up and, and he sits with the Jews, that's what he means by with the circumcision, the converted Jews, and, and a divide starts to take place. They, they were separating themselves, they were showing favoritism, weren't they? They were separating themselves from the Gentile converts. And some of the Gentile converts were separating themselves from the, the Jewish converts. And Paul stood up to Peter to rebuke him. But I'll tell you that Paul was not happy about that, that he had to do that, because he was not the one who should have had to do the rebuking. The local elders should have rebuked. Why? Why the local elders? Because God had established local leadership to protect the church. But we seem to be in awe of this kingly attitude and we begin to think some are above others. Now there's counsel on how to deal with elders, isn't there? You know, you're not to rebuke an elder, but have two to three cooperating witnesses that are, uh, what would you say, vetted witnesses. They're not just forming a conspiracy. But God had established that local leadership there to protect the church. Not from Peter, somebody might say, though. He is from Jerusalem. He was one of the pillars. I mean, he knew Jesus personally. 
No, not from Peter. They were only Gentiles who had been newly converted to the faith. You don't expect them, these Gentile Galatians, who had just come into the Christian church a few years ago to stand up and rebuke Peter. I mean, he was from the Jerusalem church. He'd been a Jew all of his life. One of the pillars in the church, a follower of Jesus, not Peter. I mean, Paul was an apostle. I mean, Paul could stand up against Peter. But Paul was very unhappy that he had to do that. Notice what he says in Galatians 3 and verse 1. He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? He wasn't happy. Go a couple chapters on in Galatians 5 verse 1. He said, He says, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Well, when you're studying this, you know someone could say, well, that scripture is dealing with circumcision and all those things. Well, yeah, circumcision was involved. And eating with Gentiles was involved. But that wasn't the issue. What was the issue? Do you know what the issue was? Those were just the symptoms of the issue. The issue in Galatians was that Peter had caused them to transgress. And Paul's saying they're to stand in their freedom, even if it was Peter from the general conference at Jerusalem who should come down and preach false theology. We have no king but Jesus, isn't that true? It's a kingly attitude that's like a leaven that just it just enters and goes throughout all the organization if it's unchecked. Testimonies to Ministers, page 358. She says, But strange fire has been offered in the use of harsh words, in self-importance, in self-exaltation, in self-righteousness, in arbitrary authority, in domineering, in oppression, in restricting the liberty of God's people, binding them about by your plans and rules, which God has not framed, neither have they come into His mind. All these things are strange fire, unacknowledged by God, and are a continual misrepresentation of His character." I'll emphasize, friends, that this is from the book Testimonies to Ministers. There was this kingly power, kingly attitude from the leaders, God's professed church. The Lord established the church upon the rock, Jesus Christ, didn't He? He's to be the head of the church, isn't He? Speaking of Christ, Paul said in Ephesians 1, verse 22 and 3, that He hath put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. Jesus is the head. Jesus is our King. 
you know, the the issues in the days of Martin Luther was who was in charge of the church, the Lord or the Pope. And that was the issue in Wesley's day. And it was the issue for Seventh-day Adventists at the General Conference session in 1888. Who's in charge of the church? Well, they knew that the Pope wasn't. But that's the issue. Who's in charge of the church? And I've been amazed as I've studied it how little Ellen White deals with doctrine in relationship to what happened in 1888. You see, it wasn't doctrine she was dealing with so much. The problem the conference leadership had with Jones and Wagner was that they didn't go through the proper channels. They weren't approved by the proper people. It's amazing. Paul said to the Galatians, you need to be free in Christ. And you are free in Christ. Christ is the head. He's the one we follow. He's the one who guides us as to where where and what we're to do. Now I'm going to share some following statements with you. They're from a letter that Ellen White wrote to Elder Butler. First one, from 1888 Materials, page 112. God designs that men shall use their minds and consciences for themselves. He never designed that one man should become the shadow of another and utter only another's sentiments. But this error has been coming in among us, that a very few are to be mind, conscience, and judgment for all God's workers. The foundation of Christianity is Christ our righteousness. Now what did she say? She said, this error has been coming in among us. What was the error? That a very few are to be the mind, conscience, and judgment for all God's workers. She says, the foundation of Christianity is what? What did she say? Christ our righteousness. You want to know what Christ our righteousness means? She tells us what it means. She goes on, page 112, she says, Men are individually responsible to God and must act as God acts upon them not as another human mind acts upon their mind. And that's it, in a nutshell. God is to decide what is right, not some human committee, friends. God makes the rules, not some human rule book. The Bible is our creed. Isn't that true? That, in a nutshell, really is Christ our righteousness. (laughs) Continuing on, 1888 materials, page 112 to 113. For if this method of indirect influence is kept up, souls cannot be impressed and directed by the great I Am. They will, on the other hand, have their experiences, their experience blended with another and will be kept under a moral restraint which allows no freedom of action 
or of choice. Friends, we call that popery. Essentially, that's what it is. She says, if we would be wise and use diligently, prayerfully and thankfully the means whereby light and blessings are come to His people, then no voice nor power upon earth would have authority over us to say, this shall not be. Freedom. In the book, uh, Testimonies to Ministers, she wrote a great deal of material to the leadership ministry in, in general after 1888. Because you see, what happened in 1888, they had rejected righteousness by faith. No matter what you hear the professed church tell you today, all you got to do is go back and, and look at the history and read the writings. They rejected it. A most precious message, she says, that was given. And they rejected it. Why? Because the messengers who gave it, they didn't go through the proper channels. And so, you know, after that conference in 1888, she, she wrote a lot of material to the leadership. And much of this book that Testimonies the Minister is dealing with this very principle of church authority, a kingly attitude, a kingly power, she calls it sometimes. Among similar statements, notice what she said here, Testimonies to Ministers, page 361. She says, the high-handed power, (laughs) what? The high-handed power that has been developed as though position has made men gods makes me afraid and ought to cause fear. It is a curse wherever and by whomever it is exercised. What did she say? She had said that it was creeping in, right? It was coming in among God's people. And then she says it's this high-handed power that's been developed as though positioned has made men gods. That's the hierarchy, isn't it? Isn't that popery? She goes on, page 363, Testimonies to Ministers. The spirit of domination is extending to the precedence of the conferences. If a man is sanguine of his own powers and seeks to exercise dominion over his brethren, feeling that he is invested with authority to make his will the ruling power, the best and only safe course is to what? Remove him. Remember I said earlier that there are some things that if spoken of through the counsel of the prophet would cause a lot of turmoil. It's considered criticism. I read that. Well, you're criticizing the church. What do you expect them really to say? (laughs) That's what you find. This kingly attitude will say, hey, you're you're criticizing me. Notice this in the chapter entitled, Under Which Banner? Again, Testimonies to Ministers, page 365. She says, humanity. Now, of course, who's she speaking to here? 
She's talking to ministers, right? The leadership. She says, humanity is hailed as God. In all actuality, friends, when, when she's speaking to the leadership, she really, it trickles down. She's speaking to us, isn't she? She's speaking to us. She's talking to us. She says, page 366, God will not vindicate any device whereby man shall in the slightest degree rule or oppress his fellow men. In the slightest degree, she says. Because you see, that's the complete opposite of God's character. Remember, Jesus came. He came to establish kingdom, but it was the exact opposite of what the Jews desired. In fact, this kingly attitude, she said, you know, there's a curse pronounced upon all who do this. And this is our scripture reading for today. Jeremiah 17. And verse 5, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man. Now that's not saying that you can't trust one another. That's saying you trust them as someone over you. Cursed be the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm. Or you trust in yourself, you see. And whose heart departeth from the Lord. Because if you trust in yourself or you put people above you, you do their whims. You've departed from the Lord. Testimonies to ministers again, page 375. She says, State conferences may depend upon the general conference for light and knowledge and wisdom, but is it safe for them to do this? Whoa! Back up the truck. Let's read that again. State conferences may depend upon the general conference for light and knowledge and wisdom, but is it safe for them to do this? She says, Battle Creek is not to be the center of God's work. Or, of course, they moved headquarters from Battle Creek to, what is it, Tacoma Park or Silver Spring, Maryland, wherever it is out there. Well, let's get the principle here. She said, Battle Creek is not to be the center of God's work. God alone can fill this place. When our people in the different places have their special convocations, teach them for Christ's sake and for their own soul's sake not to make flesh their arm. There is no power in men to read the hearts of their fellow men. The Lord is the only one upon whom we can with safety depend. And He is accessible in every place and to every church in the Union. To place men where God should be placed does not honor or glorify God. Is the President of the General Conference to be the God of the people? And friends, instead of teaching the truth God has commissioned to be taught, do you know what she says we have been teaching? On how... Uh, what we have been taught. Testimonies to Ministers, page 325. She says, For many years, an education has been given to the people which places God second 
and man first. The people have been taught that everything must be brought before the council of a few men in Battle Creek. You realize, friends, the professed church, you know, when they they have a general conference session, you know, delegates from all the churches, representative form of government, you know, that's the appearance, isn't it? And people vote, and, you know, and it goes from there. But really, the general conference has a select committee that makes decisions all the time. It's just a group, a certain group of men. Well, it probably has women on it now too. Men and women. And she says here, the people have been taught that everything must be brought before the council of a few men in Battle Creek. A few men at the general conference. You've got to bring it to them. Let them decide. Look what happened. Look, look what has happened in this country. We have a constitution that lays out freedoms, but things are decided by what? Nine people with black robes make the final decision. And that's not the way the framers set it up. But you see, that's the worldly way. That's the Antichrist way, you see? That kingly attitude. And she says, people have been taught that God is second and man is first. And I want you to notice that I hope that you you see this as a serious matter because it's breaking, first of all, it's breaking the first commandment, isn't it? Exodus 20, verse 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. <laughs> right? Testimonies to Ministers, page 380. Let me entreat our state conferences and our churches to cease putting their dependence upon men and making flesh their arms, she says. And today I'll tell you, friends, that we've gone far beyond where they were in 1888. And I ask you, beloved, can you see how important it is to know who and what the church is and how it's to be organized? A few more quotes here. This one's from the Spalding Megan uh, or McGann collection, page 163. They started the school at, at Madison outside the conference and they got a lot of grief for it. Notice what she says here. Let me entreat, oh, excuse me, in reference to our conference, it is repeated over and over and over again that it is the voice of God. And therefore, everything must be referred to the conference and have the conference voice in regard to permission or restriction or what shall be and what shall not be done in the various fields. Notice what she said. She says, we have heard enough abundance about that everything must go around in the regular way. He, that's God, wants every living soul that has a knowledge of the truth to come to their senses. Haven't you heard that? It's as the voice of God to the people. Well, if it's the voice of God, do you see then, you want God to tell you what to do. They've replaced God. That's popery. It's Romanist. One more. This is the same Spalding and Megan, page 166. The Lord wants His Spirit to come in. He wants the Holy Ghost King. 
Friends, I'll tell you, we've come to the point today that you'll be disfellowshipped and sued if you profess to be a Seventh-day Adventist and share the three angels' messages without permission from the General Conference. The kingly attitude prevails. It's sad to say in God's professed church. Will it prevail with you? That's the question. As Paul said to the elders, you need to check yourselves. God is looking for every one of us to be broken on the rock Jesus. You see, when Jesus is the King, then unity and peace and love pervade. And it doesn't do away with organization at all, but it's the only thing that really creates a working, functional organization based upon God's love and God's principles. And when God's plan is followed, No one is striving for office because everyone is striving to serve one another. Amen? I'll leave you with this. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. It says, But Jesus called them unto Him, and He said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, I encourage you, as Paul says, let us exercise the freedom God has given us and choose to organize according to his plan, serving one another in love. And by this shall the world know that we are His disciples. By this shall we receive the latter rain and finish the work we've been blessed to be given. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You so very, very much that You are indeed love. That You have principles of righteousness that You're wanting us to share. That You are the head of the church. That Jesus directs our path. Let us not replace Thee with some other God, be it committee, pastor, minister, family member, whoever. Lord, pour out Your grace upon us that we may keep our eyes looking upward. And those of us called to serve in greater responsibility, let us guard the flock and stand up to those wolves. Be they come from Jerusalem (laughs) or Washington or another local church, wherever it may be. May we be faithful to our trust. Please continue to be with us, Lord, throughout this Sabbath day. Bless us so that we may bless others. We pray in Jesus' name, for He's worthy. Amen.